Turn with me in your copy of God's Word, please, to Galatians chapter 3 once again. We are picking up again in the end of Galatians chapter 3, where we left off last week. And this evening, we're going to talk about many of the, the amazing realities of salvation. Really, I think one of the most amazing realities, and then the implications of that. And that is the adoption of all believers into not only God's family, but the family of Abraham, according to the Abrahamic covenant. Adoption into being grafted into Abraham's family. And because of that, you inherit all the blessings, all the implications of being one of Abraham's sons. And that is one of the realities, I think, that is, it is one of the most important, but it's also one of the ones that we don't necessarily grasp the, the gravity of it all, the, the importance of what it is to be a child of Abraham, what it is to be a son of the one God made the covenant, covenant with, the a son of the one who all of these blessings, all the inheritance was promised to. But as we grow in our understanding, part of sanctification is to grow in our knowledge of Christ and of the blessings that come through our salvation. And that's what Peter talks about in, in Second Peter. He, he says to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And part of that is growing in a greater understanding of what the gospel is and all that entails. Growing in a greater understanding of salvation and what is ours because of our salvation. And many people today, they have a, a different understanding of what it is to be a Christian. And sometimes a false, even a false understanding of what it is to be a Christian. To many people, to, to be a Christian is to have some experience or to have something that Jesus makes me better at this. Or Jesus gives me this. That's why I'm a Christian. That's what makes me a Christian. Or I pray and I talk to God. I know God, so therefore I'm a Christian. But what is it to be saved? What is it to be one of God's children? As uh, Dr. John MacArthur comments on this reality, he says, Christ did not give himself on the cross in death to save us from sickness, to save us from sadness, to save us from loneliness, to save us from loss, to save us from lack of purpose, to save us from poverty, to save us from trouble, but to save us from everlasting hell. It's God's most wondrous and necessary work that he prepare a way for sinners to be rescued from eternal hell and brought into eternal heaven. This reality that completely undeserving, wicked, fallen creatures would be adopted into the plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation, would be brought into this amazing reality of the inheritance of eternal life. Again, Christ didn't die so that you would be a better person. Christ didn't die so that you would have some experience. Christ died to pay for your sin and purchase your eternal salvation. And we've been talking through, as we talk through the first couple chapters of Galatians, what the gospel is. And, and Paul's been making that clear to these Galatian believers. And he made it clear that they are believers. 
Christ died so that you could be part of Abraham's family and part of the inheritance given to him. You could become an heir, and that's what he talks about tonight, an heir of the inheritance promised to Abraham. That inheritance is eternal life, salvation from the wrath of God. If you are a son of Abraham through faith in Christ. As the Puritan Jonathan Edwards said, the greatness of the misery of hell and the greatness of the bliss of heaven is correspondent to the greatness of the things God has done to procure the one and save us from the other. There are many blessings to salvation. There, there are many realities that are true of us, and that we will see tonight in our passage. But I think the greatest blessing is being adopted into the family of God, and then therefore an, uh, an heir to the inheritance given, which is eternal life, eternal salvation, eternal communion with the God, not only of the universe, but over everything. The supreme, almighty God has made a way for believers to be part of his eternal heaven. This is the amazing reality of the inheritance that is ours as children of Abraham through Christ. And as he will continue in chapter 4, you are not a slave anymore, you are an heir. And he's really getting across to these Galatians what it is to be a son of Abraham, an heir, one who is owed the inheritance. And that has really been the struggle of this Galatian church. Who are the sons of Abraham? Who are the ones to receive the promises given to Abraham? Is it the Jews? Do you have to become a Jew in order to inherit Abraham's blessing? Do you have to follow the law? Do you have to be circumcised just like the Jews were? Or is the gospel, having faith in Christ, enough? That is the question before the Galatian believers here. And again, as I mentioned, we come here to the end of chapter 3, and in the last few weeks as we've been going through chapter 3, we saw that a new major section begins at Galatians 3.15. That really st starts Paul's argument through what it is to be a member of the family of Abraham. He talked about the law and the promise and the difference between the law given after the promise to Abraham, how the law was given after Abraham was promised this inheritance, so how could the law be required to obtain the inheritance? Abraham was given the promise. 430 years later came the law. So how could it be the law that is primary? How could it be the law that is to be obeyed in order to have what Abraham had? The law, then, is inferior to the promise. And he gave a few different reasons for that in, in chapter 3 here, that it was given to increase the transgression, to show us more of our sin, to show us we don't measure up, to make us more of a sinner, to show us what it is to not measure up to God's standard. It was also given for a limited period of time. Paul talked about it was given until the offspring, the seed, would come. And he has come. The seed was Christ. And also, he made the point in verses 19 and 20 that it was given through a mediator, meaning there was two parties in this covenant, the Mosaic covenant. There was God and the people of Israel, and they each had 
things they needed to uphold in order to keep the covenant, and Israel failed. Whereas the covenant with Abraham, God made with himself. Abraham had no conditions to meet in order to be given this promise. God said, I will give you all these things. I will make your name great. I will bless your offspring. That was all God's doing. He needed no mediator. So, Paul made the point that the promise given to Abraham is superior to the law, and therefore, the law is not the requirement to obtain the inheritance promised to Abraham. However, as Paul mentioned in verse 21, the law is not contrary to the promises of God. It's not as though the law is in opposition to the promise. Because the law was never designed to bring life like the promise was. Instead, it imprisoned all under sin so that the promise could be secured through Christ. But even more than that, the law was intended to have a limited time period right from the beginning. The law functioned as, as we talked about last week, a tutor or a pedagogue, one who would train or point to something else. And that's what the law functioned as. The law was always to point us to Christ. The law was always to point Israel to Christ. The law was to show them, you aren't enough to keep it. You are not enough to earn your salvation. Therefore, you need the Messiah that's coming. That's what the law was always about, to point to Christ. And now that the offspring of Abraham has come and fulfilled all these things, the law is no longer binding. The law is no longer required for the people of God. And that's what Paul has been arguing here in chapter 3. And that brings us to our passage tonight, verses 26 through 29, through the end of the chapter of chapter 3. So I'm going to read our passage tonight, Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 29. This is the word of the Lord. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So as you can see, Paul is wrapping up his argument here on being sons of Abraham and the primary nature of the Abrahamic covenant. Here in this passage, Paul explains why the pedagogue, the tutor, was no longer needed. You see that with the word for in verse 26. That's dependent on what came before. So it's following his argument from last week. They no longer need the tutor because Christ has come, and he explains why. First, he explains that they are sons. They are sons of Abraham through faith in Christ. That's the primary reason. And then following that, he has another for that explains more realities that are true because they're sons. And that is that they are baptized, they are clothed, they are one, and they are heirs of the inheritance. These are all the truths that Paul wraps up this argument with. They are Abraham's offspring by virtue of belonging to Jesus Christ, being identified, unified in Christ. Jesus Christ, as we talked about, is the seed of Abraham that was promised. And all those who are baptized into Christ and incorporated into Christ, are part of Abraham's family. Doesn't, and as Paul explains, it doesn't matter their ethnic or class background, whether they're male or female, slave or free. 
This is true of all who are in Christ. The central truth of this passage is that believers are the offspring of Abraham because of their union with Christ, the one true seed of Abraham, the one who was promised. And the same truth is communicated in several ways, but believers are children of God through faith, and they are all one in Christ. So let's dig, in our, dig into our text a, uh, a little deeper this evening, and let's start back again at verse 26. And he, like I said, he starts with four. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The four there connects it to the verse before. Verse before is 25, but after faith has come, we are no longer in need of a tutor. Why are we no longer in need of a tutor? For we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Believers are no longer under the law that was the tutor. The former age of salvation is over, and now, as always, they are justified by faith. They've always been justified by faith. The law was to point them to Christ, to point them to the one to have faith in. He says they are sons of God. To say that they are sons of God is equivalent to say that they have reached maturity in the family of God. They have come to the status of sons, the ones who are owed the inheritance. It would be equivalent to say they have reached adulthood and they have obtained the promises given to the sons of the Father. These, and again, this promise is not, this inheritance, this promise is not obtained through the law. It's not obtained through keeping the law or obedience or anything you could do. It's obtained by who you are in Christ. It's obtained through faith in Christ, uni- being unified in Christ Jesus. And that's what he says, through faith in Christ Jesus. All believers are God's sons because of faith. They are sons because of faith in Christ, who is the true seed. As Martin Luther commented on this passage, he's noting the the miraculous and marvelous nature of this reality. And he says, What tongue, either of men or angels, can sufficiently extol and magnify the great mercy of God towards us, that we, who are miserable sinners, and by nature children of wrath, should be called into his grace and glory? to be made the children and heirs of God, fellow heirs with the Son of God, and lords over heaven and earth, and that by the only means of our faith in Jesus Christ. One of the things I appreciate about Martin Luther, and I've really been blessed by his commentary on Galatians, is that he has such a realistic view of the depravity of man, the absolute fallenness and sinfulness of man. That's what drove him to faith in Christ. He was leaning on his own works to pay for his sin. He was leaning on the indulgences and all the things of the Catholic Church to keep earning his way to heaven, and he realized he couldn't even keep up with his sinfulness. He was so sinful that he couldn't go from one payment to the next without feeling this weight of sin. And that drove him to realize that he couldn't couldn't do this. He couldn't pay for his sin. He needed a Savior. He needed faith in Christ. This is, again, the the greatest blessing of salvation is that you are sons of God through faith in Christ. So again, that is the first reality that Paul mentions here, that you are sons. 
And then following that, there's going to be four more things that are true because you are sons through faith in Christ Jesus. The next thing that follows is that you are baptized. And he says in verse 27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The four here, again, connects and supports the verse before it. For, so because you're sons, for as many of you as have been baptized, if they're sons, they are baptized. He says, as were baptized. This is a reality. This isn't something that needs to be done or something that is dependent upon or their faith or their salvation is dependent upon it. It is a reality if you are a son of God. You are baptized into Christ. It is the first marker of being a son here listed by Paul. So what is this baptism that he's talking about? Well, the word itself, baptize, baptizo, is, is the Greek word, and we just take that right into English, to baptize. It means to plunge, dip, wash, immerse, or baptize. To immerse is really a, a good translation. To be immersed into Christ. That's what sons of God are. That's what children of God are, are immersed into Christ. There is no son of God that is not immersed into Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. As Thomas Schreiner comments on this use of baptism, he says most, and he's talking about baptism in general, most scholars agree that baptism, the ordinance of baptism by immersion, was the practice in New Testament times, and hence it functions as a picture of, of being incorporated into Christ. Those baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death and his resurrection. Therefore, the old self has been crucified with Christ. That is what baptism into Christ is, is identifying with his death and resurrection and now victory over sin and death. Now, this verse here is not specifically talking about the ordinance of baptism, of water baptism. This is the reality of spiritual baptism that is true of all Christians. Now, in the, in the Great Commission, Christ said to make disciples and baptize them. So that is a command to us, but, and the ordinance of baptism is to be obeyed. And it is a picture of what is true of the believer. It is a picture of what is true of every believer. You have been, you are, baptized into Christ. He says, you're baptized into Christ. That's an important word there, too, as well. Faith in Jesus baptizes us into Christ. And while this verse is not about the ordinance of water baptism, it is very important to it. It is related to it. Our ordinance of baptism, our command to be baptized, is very directly related to this reality. Notice it doesn't say you are baptized with Christ or baptized by Christ. Notice it doesn't say you were sprinkled with Christ. No, you were immersed into Christ. That is what baptism means. The baptism of the Spirit identifies the believer with Christ and makes him part of the body. Romans chapter 6 talks about this as well and very clearly explains what baptism is. And I know you're probably familiar with this passage. It's Romans 6, 3 through 4. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, again there, baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried and with him 
by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God the Father, we might too walk in the newness of life. It's talking about baptism, the reality of our baptism. We've been baptized into Christ, baptized into his death, and just like Christ, been raised by the glory of God. It's a, it's a picture of baptism. And then Colossians 2, 12 mentions similar things. It says, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Again, that's what baptism pictures, being buried with Christ and raised with him into new life. But again, this verse is not specifically talking about water baptism or the ordinance of baptism. It's talking about the reality of our spiritual baptism into Christ. But there are some different things to note. As I had already said, we're baptized into Christ, which paints a pretty, pretty good picture of what baptism is, immersed into Christ. But also, one of the arguments or one of the, the supporting things that those who do not hold to water baptism or that hold to baptizing children or infants is that they argue baptism is the replacement of circumcision as the covenant sign. Now, wouldn't you think that in the letter where Paul is arguing that circumcision is no longer needed for the Christian, would he not mention baptism if that was the case? Would he not say, you don't need to be circumcised to be a son of Abraham, we have baptism now? But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say baptism is the replacement of circumcision. He says circumcision is not required for sons of God. Circumcision is not part of your salvation. Baptism into Christ is a reality for all believers. And again, those who, who hold to infant baptism and claim that it is a replacement of circumcision, that is not in the text here, and that is not anywhere required as an identification of what baptism is. And also, also another point to make, baptism doesn't save us. Paul's talking about the baptism of the Spirit here, which is to be represented as our, by the ordinance of baptism. But baptism into Christ is a reality of all who are saved. And the ordinance of baptism is to follow that. Being baptized into Christ means you are saved. You are a son of God. That is your reality now, there are many who would hold that baptism is part of salvation. Catholics would be one. There are many other groups that would hold to baptism being the point of salvation. When you're baptized, that's when you become a member of the family of God. But that is not true. Paul is talking about sons of God, as many of you as were baptized. That's the reality. If you were a son of God, you were baptized into Christ. So again, this verse is talking about the spiritual reality, which is followed by the ordinance, the present physical reality of baptizing to show what's happened in the life of every believer. This verse is talking about being identified in Christ. That's what it is to be baptized into Christ. You are identified with him in his death and in his resurrection, and in his eternal life following. 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones makes a helpful comment on this. He says, to be a Christian is not only to believe the teaching of Christ and to practice it. It is not only to try to follow the pattern and example of Christ. It is to be so vitally related to Christ that his life and his power are working in us. It is to be in Christ. It is for Christ to be in us. It is full identification with Christ. That's what it is to be baptized into Christ Jesus. And again, that is the reality for every believer, every son of God. We are baptized into Christ, and he goes on to say we are clothed with Christ. He says, for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This word to put on is to clothe yourself, to clothe yourself in Christ, or to be clothed in Christ. Again, here Paul emphasized everyone who's been immersed into Christ at their conversion is now clothed with Christ. Before being united in Christ, all men were clothed with Adam, the first Adam. But as Paul says in Ephesians, you are to put off the old man and put on the new man. Or more accurately, you have put off the old man and put on the new man. Now live like him. Again, it's a reality. If you are a believer, this is true of you. You are clothed. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have been clothed with Christ. Again, remember Paul's argument here. He's arguing what makes a son of Abraham. What is it that identifies one as the son of Abraham and therefore heir of the promise? Again, Paul's argument, son, sonship of Abraham does not depend on circumcision because that era has passed. The law has passed. It all hangs on whether you are united with Christ. And if you're united with Christ, you've been baptized into Christ and are clothed in Christ. Again, uh, John MacArthur commenting on this, he says, There is no such thing as a Christian who is not clothed with Christ. Following Christ's teachings is important, but it cannot save a person or keep him saved. It is only being clothed with Christ that provides and preserves salvation. That truth is the heart of Christianity and the emphasis of Galatians 3. And that's really the crux of the matter here for the Galatians. The law was to point them to Christ. Obedience to God's word, to the law, and now as Christ has given us his teaching on the law as we're going through in Matthew, obedience to Christ and what he teaches. It is important, but it does not save you. You can obey the law as much as you can, and it does not save you. And that was the problem with these Judaizers in Galatia. Obedience is not what saves you. Faith alone is what saves you. And so they are baptized as sons. They are baptized, they are clothed. And then the next verse, verse 28, says that they are one. It says, There is no Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. All believers are united in Christ. And it doesn't matter what they come from. It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Greek, if you're a slave or free, man or woman. If you are a believer, you are a son of Abraham. The children of Abraham, in the view of the Judaizers, were Jewish. They were Israelites. They followed the law. And even though Christ had come, 
they believed you still had to be a Jew because Jews were the chosen people of God. So in order to be a Jew, you have to keep the law, you have to be circumcised, all these different things. And that's what it is to be a child of Abraham. Paul is correcting their view here. He is correcting their vision of what it is to be a member of the family of God and an heir of Abraham. The children of Abraham are those who belong to Christ. Christ is the only true offspring and fulfillment of the seed of Abraham, and all who are identified with Christ, clothed with Christ, are one in Christ. They are co-heirs of the promise of Abraham. And again, Paul gets right to the heart of the matter here. There is no more Jew or Greek. There is neither Jew or Greek. The Judaizers are trying to convince the Greeks to come over to be Jews. There is no Jew or Greek. Paul says, you're wasting your time. This is an unnecessary distinction. There is no Jew or Greek. So fighting to make the Greeks into Jews is a worthless effort. There is no Jew or Greek anymore. We are all one in Christ. Equality in the member, as members in Abraham's family, however, does not rule out these distinctions. It just makes, Paul is just making sure that they understand this is not how you are saved. You don't have to be a Jew or a Greek to be saved. You don't have to be slave or free. You don't have to be a male or a female. All of us are one in our salvation. In Romans, Paul writes of the future salvation of Israel. Romans 9 through 11. He talks about how Israel, the nation of Israel, will be saved. So wiping out the distinction of Israel as a nation doesn't compute with what Paul says elsewhere. So Paul is not saying there's no such thing as ethnicity anymore. There's no such thing as being from this nation or that nation. He's just saying that is not what's important. That is not what saves you. That is not what identifies you as a child of God. It is the gospel that saves. It is faith that saves. And anyone who has faith in Christ is one in Christ. Notice Paul dealt a lot with slavery and the idea of slavery. He dealt with people who owned slaves. You think of Philemon. He sent Onesimus back to him. And he didn't say, Philemon, how dare you have a slave? You should set him free. He said, no, take him back. He's a believer. He's helpful to me. He doesn't, in his writing on Christian conduct, tell masters to free their slaves. He tells masters to treat their slaves well. He does say slaves should gain their freedom if possible because that makes them more able to serve Christ. It frees them up to more possibilities. But Paul is not greatly concerned about whether or not you're a slave or you're free. What Paul's concerned of is your identity in Christ. That is what's important. And what he's saying is anybody can be a child of God if you have the faith of Abraham. You can be a slave and be a child of God. You can be a free man and be a child of God. You can be a Jew and you can be a Greek. You can be a man and you can be a woman. Anybody can be a child of God. Anybody can be an heir of Abraham's promise if you have the faith of Abraham. Another important distinction that Paul does not wipe out in this verse is male and female. Paul is not saying male and female doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter if 
you're a male or a female, there's, we're all equal now and there's no difference. There is a difference. We know that from creation. What he's saying is anybody, again, can be saved. There are roles for men and women. We know that from Scripture. The point, again, is in regard to salvation, we are all one in Christ. And verse 29 makes this point clear. It kind of wraps up the whole section, really all of chapter 3. It says, and if you are of Christ, really it's bringing out, tying all these threads together. He's, he's been listing a lot of different evidence for his argument that the law is not required for salvation. And this is how he ties it all up. He says, if you are of Christ, you are Abraham's seed. And therefore, if you're Abraham's seed, you are heirs according to the promise. You see the word heirs here, it all ties it back to the inheritance. The inheritance that was promised to Abraham, realized in Christ, that all nations would be blessed through your offspring, your seed. The inheritance that was promised to Abraham, we are all heirs of that if we are in Christ. Again, the major issue of this chapter is who belongs to Abraham, and Paul makes it crystal clear. If you are in Christ... You belong to Abraham. The law couldn't produce true sons of God. The law just increased sin. The only way to legitimately be called the offspring of Abraham is not because you were Jewish. Christ made that clear to the Pharisees. You are not sons of Abraham. You are sons of your father, the devil. True sons of Abraham have faith in Christ. If he, that's what he makes clear. If Christ says to the Pharisees, if you were sons of Abraham, you would believe in me. But you don't, so you're not. Paul is making the same point. If you are in Christ, those are the true sons of Abraham, the true heirs of the promise, the inheritance. John Stott made a good summary of this, this passage, this, this point Paul is making. We cannot come to Christ to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be condemned. But once we have gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin, guilt, and condemnation, we cannot stay there. We must let Moses send us back to Christ. That's Paul's point with the law and the promise. The law was given to point us to Christ, to show us our sinfulness. And they, these Judaizers want to stay in the law. They want to stay in the covenant. And Paul says that's a curse. You're bringing a curse on yourself because you can't do it. You can't keep the law, and therefore you won't be saved through the law. You can't stay in Moses. You have to let Moses drive you back to Christ. Your sinfulness needs to drive you to the one who paid for your sin. The reality that you are a fallen sinner that is worthy of wrath and hell, that should drive you to the only one who paid that penalty and can give you salvation and eternal deliverance from your sin. The inheritance given to Abraham's offspring is secured in Christ and given to all of his heirs through faith alone in what Christ has done. So again, in this passage, there are several things that Paul explains, but it all comes from the fact that they are sons of Abraham, sons of God through Christ. That's where he starts. You are sons of God through faith in Christ. And because you are sons, you are baptized, 
You are clothed, you are one, and you are heirs of the inheritance. None of these things come through the law or obedience or any works that we can do. They come through faith. Faith alone. That is the only way of salvation. All of these things are true of anyone in Christ. You cannot be in Christ and not be a son of God and not be baptized in Christ, clothed in Christ, one in Christ, and an heir of the promise. If you are a Christian, that is true of you. These are the sons of God. In Christ, we make no distinctions based on any sort of worldly ideas of what makes us different. There is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. That is not what separates us in the family of God. That type of thinking is alien to the fellowship of God. Any sort of racism or classism or white supremacy or even today white guilt or white fragility, any sort of separations we make from external sources, that is that kind of anger and hostility is part of the world. That is no part of the church. There is no distinction in Christ. We are one in Christ. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ. And this is true of all believers. You are one in Christ. And you are in Christ. And I am in Christ. And Christ is in us. You are the true sons of Abraham. You are descendants of Abraham, and therefore you receive the promises given to Abraham, fulfilled through Jesus Christ. That God would go to this extent to rescue us from hell and give us access and entrance into heaven. That is the greatest blessing and reality of your salvation. Do not remain in the prison and the curse of the law trying to earn your salvation, trying to become a good person by what you do. Come find freedom and joy and heaven and what Christ has done. Let's stand and pray in closing this evening. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks of these glorious realities, these amazing truths that are true of all of your children. That if we are in Christ by faith in what he has done, we are sons of God. And that because that's true, we are baptized and unified in Christ. We are clothed in Christ. We are one with each other in Christ. And we are heirs of the promise, the inheritance given to us, and that is eternal life with you. We thank you for the truth revealed to us in your word in, in a passage here in Galatians. We thank you for the, the reality that Paul helps us understand by explaining our salvation. We pray that we would grow in the knowledge of Christ Jesus, the knowledge of the grace given to us in the gospel. We thank you for it. We pray that as we have opportunity, as we go from here, we would share this truth with those around us, those who may not know Christ, those who are under the wrath of God and need a 
deliverer, just like we do. We again thank you for Christ. Thank you for sending your son to pay our penalty on the cross. Thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this evening, and we pray that you would help us to glorify you as we go from here. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.